Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 30th of December for the listening week that begins the 31st. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. This week's program brings news from sports, obituaries, entertainment, college, politics, and perhaps more. Opening with articles from thegrio.com. The 160th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation is a reminder of how far we've come as a country and the work still to be done. This is an opinion piece. Byline says, The proclamation, issued January 1, 1863, by President Abraham Lincoln, didn't bring immediate freedom for the approximately 4 million black people living in enslavement at that time, but the document did lead to significant changes. This was written by Donna Brazil. It was posted December 27th. Editor's note, the following article is an op-ed, and the views expressed are the author's own. There's more to celebrate on January 1st than the start of a new year. It's the 160th anniversary of the Emancipation, pardon me again, Emancipation Proclamation, issued on January 1st, 1863 by President Abraham Lincoln to declare an end to slavery in the Confederate States at war with the United States. In reality, the proclamation didn't bring immediate freedom for my own great-grandparents or for approximately four million other black people living in enslavement at the time. That's because Confederate forces fighting in the Civil War didn't surrender until the spring of 1865, and four states that sided with the North in the war, Delaware, Kentucky, Maryland, and Missouri, still allowed slavery. However, the proclamation had important effects. First, it enabled black men to officially join the Union Army. The idea of black and white soldiers fighting side by side as equals was too radical for whites, so the department, pardon me, the War Department, created the United States Colored Troops, led by white officers. Since it was impractical to have separate ships for black and white sailors, both races served together in the Navy. But blacks were barred from becoming officers, and many formerly enslaved men held the lowest rank, known as boy. Some 180,000 black men served in the Union Army, and 19,000 served in the Navy. More than 40,000 died in the Civil War. These heroic black freedom fighters played a major role in saving the United States from breaking in two and in ending slavery. Second, the Emancipation, pardon me again, the Emancipation Proclamation helped persuade Britain and France not to enter the Civil War on the side of the Confederacy, which both European nations were considering as a way of expanding their influence in the Americas. Because the proclamation cast the Civil War as a righteous fight to end slavery, 
an institution many Europeans opposed, British and French leaders decided to stay out of the conflict. Had the two powerful nations intervened on behalf of the Confederacy, the South might have prevailed in the war, and slavery might have continued for years. And finally, the Emancipation Proclamation paved the way for the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which was ratified by the states on December 6, 1865, and at long last abolished slavery throughout the United States. Of course, the 13th Amendment didn't end the systemic racism that has infected America with the virus of hatred since the first enslaved Africans were brought to this country in chains in 1619. At the end of the Civil War, newly freed black Americans had no money, owned no land, had been denied an education, and faced legalized discrimination that barred them from many jobs, schools, public facilities, and residential neighborhoods, as well as denying them the right to vote. Much has changed for the better since 1865, of course. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. and many heroes of the Civil Rights Movement joined with white allies to win the enactment of laws outlawing racial discrimination. Although, in practice, discrimination has stubbornly persisted, Tragically, Dr. King and too many others sacrificed their lives to give us our rights under the Constitution. In my lifetime, black people have reached the heights of power and achievement in government, business, academia, medicine, science, entertainment, sports, and every other sector. Just looking at government, Barack Obama served for eight years as the first black president of the United States. Kamala Harris is now serving as our first black vice president. Two black men and one black woman have served on the Supreme Court, and Representative Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, will become the first black leader of a party in Congress when he becomes House Minority Leader in January. Yet the legacy of slavery and centuries of racism remains with us today and is responsible for higher black poverty, unemployment, imprisonment, and rates of illness, and lower black educational attainment, family income, home ownership, and other benchmarks of attaining the American dream. Unfortunately, many lawmakers remain in vehement opposition to affirmative action, anti-poverty programs, aid targeted to black businesses, and to even considering the possibility of reparations to right the wrongs of the past and make America a more just and equitable nation. Obviously, we all know that no one alive today ever enslaved black Americans, but that's no excuse to say America as a nation has no responsibility to help the descendants of the enslaved overcome the racism that was, and many have said, oh, pardon me, that was, as many have said, America's original sin. On the 160th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation, we should reflect on the wise words Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered in a 1962 speech about the significance of the document. Dr. King said, If our nation had done nothing more in its whole history than to create just two documents— its contribution to civilization would be imperishable. The first of these documents is the Declaration of Independence, 
and the other is the Emancipation Proclamation. Explaining that the Emancipation Proclamation corrected the grave failure of the Declaration of Independence to extend the blessings of freedom and liberty to black people by abolishing slavery, Dr. King said this, There is but one way to commemorate the Emancipation Proclamation, that is, to make its declarations of freedom real, to reach back to the origins of our nation when our message of equality electrified an unfree world and reaffirm democracy by deeds as bold and daring as the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation. The author of this article, Donna Brasile, is an ABC News contributor, veteran political strategist, and adjunct, adjunct professor at Georgetown University. Next, for other reasons to celebrate, still reading from the Grio, how these black families celebrate Kwanzaa in different ways. If we don't know about culture, Kwanzaa educates us. If we forget our culture, Kwanzaa reminds us, said Reverend Mark Thompson, who celebrates the cultural holiday. This was posted December 26th, written by David A. Love, and is probably going to be edited for length by your reader. Every year from December 26th through January 1st, millions of black people across the United States and parts of the African diaspora observe Kwanzaa, a celebration of family, community, and culture. Born in the midst of the black power movement of the 1960s, Kwanzaa is a week-long holiday of a cultural rather than a religious nature. And while the holiday has core principles, values, and symbols— Families have formed their own traditions and rituals around Kwanzaa. Maulana Karinga, an Africana Studies professor, founded Kwanzaa in 1966 in the wake of the Watts Uprising. The word Kwanzaa comes from the Swahili phrase Matunda ya Kwanzaa, or First Fruits of the Harvest. The celebration reflects the harvest festivals of people on the African continent. As a pan-African holiday with ancient agricultural origins, Kwanzaa celebrates the good of the earth and carries within it a commitment to protect, preserve, and share this good. And Kwanzaa's modern origins in the Black Freedom Movement commits it to the achievement of liberation and social justice, said Dr. Karinga. Kwanzaa festivities center around the Nguzo Saba, or the Seven Principles, which in Swahili are umoja, unity, bujichagulia, self-determination, ujima, collective work and responsibility, ujama, cooperative economics, nia, purpose, kumba, creativity, and imani, faith. Each of the seven candles, three red, one black, and three green, in the Kinara, represents a separate principle. Participants also celebrate with feasts, music, dance, poetry, narratives, and end the holiday with a day dedicated to reflection and recommitment to the seven principles and other central cultural values, noted Dr. Karinga. Reverend Mark Thompson, also known as Matisumela, oh, pardon this, Matsumela Mapfumo, is a black father raised in New York, pardon me, based in New York, who is the host of the Make It Plain podcast. 
Thompson is also a political, civil, and human rights activist and organizer, an ordained minister, served served as the MC for the Million Man March, and was the founding chair of the Umoja Party, a black independent political party in Washington, D.C. Thompson speaks about the practical application of the Nguzo Saba to daily life. Kwanzaa level sets African-American families seeking to reconnect to our original culture, he said. If we don't know about culture, Kwanzaa educates us. If we forget our culture, Kwanzaa reminds us. Kwanzaa isn't going anywhere. According to Deborah, Abdus Sabur, Kwanzaa is among the best times of the year. Kwanzaa is when our family comes together. We talk together. We talk about improving our lives. It's a wonderful time. Our grandchildren love it, she said. A resident of Cheltenham in the Philadelphia area, Abdus Sabur looked forward to celebrating in person with the family. We were doing Kwanzaa virtual because of COVID. I ordered the books we would read at home seven children and 22 grandchildren, I made sure everybody had the Kinaras. This is the first time we're together. We're going to read Nikki Giovanni, Maya Angelou, and then we're going to do dancing and games, do lift every voice and sing, and read poetry, she said. I'm so blessed I had a mother who taught me about Kwanzaa, she added, reflecting on her introduction to the holiday in the 1970s, when she and her family had the most positive, joyous, happy time. As the years passed, Kwanzaa became distant, but then returned to her. She said, Somehow I got disconnected, and maybe twenty years later I picked it up on my own. An African-American store had the Kinara and the Kikombe, Cha, Umoja, Unity Cup. I picked it up and said, We're going to do Kwanzaa again. You can drift away and God will align you with something you used to do. Among the Kwanzaa traditions in the Abdus Sabor family is the reading of the book, and her family views the film The Black Candle, A Kwanzaa Celebration, which is a documentary on the black experience by M.K. Asante, Jr., narrated by Maya Angelou. Now more than ever, the black community finds meaning and purpose in Kwanzaa at a time when humanity and the world are in crisis, as Dr. Karinga said, reflecting on the erosion of democracy and environmental degradation, pandemics, global conflict, and mass suffering. We're not going to stop doing Kwanzaa with all these senseless killings. I think it's important to teach kids about Kwanzaa, said Abdus Sabor, of the challenges and violence facing the community. Jasmine Banks, co-founder of the Parenting is Political podcast, first learned about Kwanzaa in elementary school and said she started celebrating in high school. Kwanzaa has been a unique way to acknowledge my connection and solidarity in the black struggle for liberation, she said, as she was speaking to the griot. And she went on. We celebrate Kwanzaa by calling our family together, cooking a meal. Oftentimes, if there are non-black folks, we will watch the black candle. We also practice sharing parts of our culture with our neighbors and setting intentions for how we will focus on freedom struggles until the next Kwanzaa. I'm drawn to Kwanzaa because I think the values are so beautiful. 
Anything with candles is a beautiful ritual. We don't do it full out, but we talk about family values and what we should do for each other, or pardon me, for each value. This was Dina Stonberg of Wallingford, Pennsylvania. Stonberg, whose husband Rich and adopted daughter Miriam are black, is white and Jewish. She went on, I'm very much the culture keeper in the family for Judaism, and interestingly, blackness and African-American customs. I serve on the board of the NAACP mostly because I love to do it. Most of my friends' groups are black women. She added, we do our best to do Kwanzaa, and we are more successful some years than others. Miriam's godmother, who moved to the Newark, Delaware area, oh, pardon me, well, pardon me again, Miriam's godmother, we do activities with the kids, we light candles together and go to the African American Museum in Philadelphia, where they have wonderful stuff for the kids. Stonberg points to her daughter as the motivation behind their family, celebrating. I went to give her the most beautiful, enriching experience, and Miriam, her racial identity is very secure. From a pretty young age, she gets it and feels very strongly. Like Christmas, Kwanzaa and Hanukkah fall in the same winter solstice season and often coincide or overlap. Stonberg's family celebrates both holidays, both of which have candles. Kwanzaa has a kinara with seven candles, while Hanukkah has a menorah with eight candles. The one thing about Kwanzaa that is very hard for me to do is to blow out candles. As Jews, we never blow out candles. That is really challenging for me, she said. Another important aspect of Kwanzaa for many families is the feast, the Kwanzaa Karuma. Pardon me, that's Karamu. Kwanzaa Karamu. Agriculture is a fundamental part of the holiday, and food is an important part of African and African-American culture. Food is shared, and Kwanzaa is about community. We're really big here when it comes to Kwanzaa, said Abdu Sabor. We make jollof rice. I try to incorporate a lot of African dishes. This year I want to pay homage to our ancestors here. We'll have fried chicken, black-eyed peas, and rice collard greens, sweet potatoes greens, and cornbread, but we're going to incorporate the jollof rice. We will be having sweet potato pie and fruit salad for dessert. Kwanzaa is a product of creative cultural synthesis and a commemoration of the past and of the ancestors. And as Dr. Karinga says, the holiday unites the community in a solidarity of past, present, and future generations. Would you take millions of dollars or go back in the past? I said I'd go back to the past, teach my children things. I would never take the million dollars. A lot of people place value on money, but I place value on human beings and family and teaching, which is so important, said Abdus Sabor. It's important because it teaches the family about unity and sticking together, how we can do better by remembering the past and moving forward. A note on this author, David A. Love. He's a journalist and commentator and an instructor at the Rutgers School of Communication, where he trains students in a social justice journalism lab. He has worked as an advocate and leader in the nonprofit sector, served as a legislative aide, and as a law clerk to two federal judges. 
Next article, another remembrance. This was posted on December 30th. Comes via the Associated Press. I don't see an author's name. Abducted Nigerian schoolgirls remembered. Quote, I think of them. On April 14, 2014, Boko Haram stormed the government girls' secondary school in the Chibok community in Borno State and forcefully took the girls as they prepared for science exams. Dateline Abuja, Nigeria. Margaret Margaret Yama's phone screensaver is a picture of her cousin, Rifkatu Galang, who is still held by Boko Haram extremists nearly nine years after she and 275 other girls were seized from their school in northeastern Nigeria. Yama was among those taken but later freed. Dozens of others have been rescued or found, but 94, including her cousin, remain missing in what was one of the Islamic extremist group's most daring attacks in Nigeria. I saved her as my screensaver so that any time I see her face, it will remind me to be praying for her to return, along with the others, said 25-year-old Yama. They are in my prayers every day. On April 14, 2014, Boko Haram stormed the government girls' secondary school, and abducted the girls as they prepared for science exams. Many of the girls remain missing, sparking the hashtag Bring Back Our Girls social media campaign that involved celebrities worldwide, including former U.S. First Lady Michelle Obama. Now the missing girls are being remembered in new sculptures created by French artist Prune Nuri in collaboration with Obafemi Oyowolo University. Inspired by ancient Nigerian Ife Terracotta heads, the series, titled Statues Also Breathe, tries to recreate the girls' facial expressions and hair patterns. Nuri hopes the sculptures on display in Nigeria's commercial hub of Lagos will remind the world of a largely forgotten tragedy. The artist said these heads personify the absent girls, still missing, so that we don't forget them, and raise the question of the rights of girls to a safe education on a global scale. This year, about a dozen of the missing girls returned, amid news that some had died in custody. Brief hope quickly faded into more anguish for families of the ones still missing. Zana Lawan, whose daughter was 16 when she was abducted, said one of the girls who returned this year told him that Aisha has two children with Boko Haram, but lost one of her elder sons. All of the girls in captivity are married now, said Lawan. There is nothing I am feeling good for because of this. All that I am now looking for is to see my daughter alive, he said. The girls who regained their freedom this year did not come home alone. All had children, 24 in total, from the extremists, said the parents. Over the years, freed girls have spoken of how the fighters forced them into marriages. As the years went by, others who resisted eventually gave in. 
If you see anyone that got married, it is her choice. She is the one that decided that she has lost hope, said Yama, who regained her freedom in 2017. Most of them, I think, it is losing hope that made them marry, she said. Yama recalled life in the militants' camps. The girls, when not separated to make their whereabouts difficult for Nigerian security forces to trace, were usually together, often doing nothing. Access to them was restricted except for the husbands. Yama said, We were just together like one family. Her mother died shortly after she was abducted in 2014. At least 30 other parents have died in various circumstances since their daughters were taken, according to Lawan, one of the leaders of the Chibok Parents Association. Even if you are well, when you are traumatized, anything can happen. If you have a sickness, that will increase to another sickness because of your daughter, he said. A year after the girls were kidnapped, now President Muhammad Buhari rode a wave of goodwill to power after promising to rescue them. Last week, the nation's national security advisor, Babagana Monguno, said the military remains committed to the cause, but said it involves an intelligence-driven process, which means it is going to be unfortunately painstaking. Many parents, however, are beginning to question the government's commitment to the girls' freedom and the Chibok community continues to suffer attacks from Boko Haram and a breakaway faction that has pledged allegiance to the Islamic State group. I know the Nigerian army, they can finish this work within 24 hours, but I don't know what it, pardon me, but I don't know what makes it to be so difficult, said Yabuku, no pardon, that's Yakubu Ngeki, whose niece was among the girls freed. As chair of the Chibok Girls Parents Union, Ngeki tries his best to offer hopes to families. Even though my own has regained freedom, I don't have peace of mind, he said. While studying law at American University of Nigeria, Yama continues trying to navigate her life back to normalcy after years of living with the extremists. Studies can be challenging because books are one of the luxuries the girls never had while in captivity, she said. Her biggest challenge, though, is staying hopeful that her cousin and all the other girls will return home one day. Next obituary tributes. New Orleans guitarist Walter Wolfman John Washington, dead at 79, Washington, a cornerstone of the Big Easy's musical nightlife for decades, has died of cancer just days after his 79th birthday. This from the Associated Press via The Griot, posted on December 29th. Dateline, New Orleans. New Orleans music legend Walter Wolfman Washington, a cornerstone of the music's city's musical nightlife, has died of cancer. Washington died December 22nd at Passages Hospice. The Times-Picayune, New Orleans Advocate, reported. Funeral services are scheduled for January 4th at Jacob Schoen and Son Funeral Home. A benefit concert to help with medical and funeral expenses is planned for January 8th at the Tipitini's, pardon me, that's Tipitina's music venue. Washington and his band, The Roadmasters, 
mixed blues, R&B, funk, and soul, punctuating songs with his trademark howl, the newspaper reported, in director Michael Murphy's 2005 New Orleans music documentary, Make It Funky, Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards bows down to Washington in tribute to his guitar style and tone. Washington started his career backing New Orleans musical legends Irma Thomas, Lee Dorsey, and Johnny Adams, who ultimately became a mentor and a close friend. Washington recalled in 1999, Johnny taught me a whole lot. He'd say, if you want to sing high notes, you've got to pay attention to how you go up there. Take your time. Don't rush yourself. Once you get used to going up there, it will come easy. He played guitar, too. He'd show me how to hit notes and how to run from one note to another and pay attention to why that note fits there. He was like a dad. I could talk to him about anything. Washington backed Adams on several Rounder record albums before releasing his first album with the Roadmasters, Leader of the Pack for the Hep Me label in 1981. He moved to Rounder for 1986's Wolf Tracks and the subsequent Out of the Dark and Wolf at the Door. The 1991 album Sada was named for his first daughter. He traveled abroad and occasionally toured domestically, but New Orleans nightclubs were his heart and soul. He was one of the first musicians to play in New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina via generator-powered shows at the Maple Leaf. After more than ten years without a new album, Washington made a comeback with 2018's My Future Is My Past. The album reunited him with Thomas for a duet on the old Adams song, Even Now and earned Washington some of the best reviews of his career. More recently, he finished another batch of eight blues-tinged songs produced by galactic saxophonist Bill Elman. Pardon me, that's Ben Elman. Washington's manager, Adam Shipley, is currently shopping the finished album to record labels. Shipley said, For the last six or seven years, Walter got the recognition he deserved. He put out some great music and had a great life. A dedicated smoker and drinker with a colorful personal life, Washington battled back from numerous health challenges over the years. Still, his March diagnosis of tonsil cancer was surprising. Even as he underwent chemotherapy and radiation, he continued to perform. Nobody could tell he, what he was going through, said his wife, Michelle. He was a trooper to the end. He didn't want people feeling sorry for him. He led an amazing life. He touched a lot of people and brought them a lot of joy. In addition to his wife, survivors include two daughters, Sada and Mamadou Washington, and a son, Brian Anderson. And next for Pele. How Pele kicked off a soccer revolution in America. This was posted December 29th, written by Darren Snyder. It's an opinion piece. Here in the United States, we were slow to truly comprehend the scope and stature of Edson Arantes do Nascimento, the international superstar, famously known as Pele. It's really no one's fault. We're just not wired like the rest of the world, where soccer reigns supreme and unrivaled as the most popular sport. America simply doesn't follow football, with the passion found elsewhere on the globe. 
we reserve that level of fervent affection for football. Pele, who died Thursday at age 82, was the planet's most famous athlete long before coming to New York in 1975 to resuscitate a floundering pro league. He had already won three World Cup titles, still a record, with Brazil, the first in 1958 as a teen prodigy. He had already scored more than 1,200 goals with Santos, the Brazilian club team that toured like rock stars throughout the 60s. He had already been retired for a year, three if you count hanging him up with the national team. To fully grasp his worldwide impact, as TV began to flourish and fans everywhere witnessed his magic without being present, watch the Netflix documentary Pele from 2021. He became a legend at 17, the youngest player to score a World Cup goal, which is still a record. He quickly grew to become Brazil's de facto ambassador, representing a nation that struggled with self-regard and lacked respect from other countries. Emerging technology gave him a global appeal unlike any footballer before him. His power as a player and public figure peaked at the 1970 World Cup in Mexico, the first to be shown in color around the world. A huge part of that mytho pardon me, mythology is that yellow shirt under the Mexican sun, said co-director Ben Nicholas. You take that away and suddenly it's a bit weaker. Instead, his legacy couldn't be any stronger. Brazilian-based foreign correspondent Andrew Downey, Downey said Pele gave the nation a brand. Downey told Andalu, pardon me, Anadolu Agency, most people could not find Brazil on a map in the 1950s, but especially after 1970, the whole world knows Brazil and identifies it as the true home of football. And Pelé was the unstoppable truth, capable of doing everything on the pitch, head, shoot, pass, dribble, tackle, score with both feet, chest the ball, said Downey. He was a leader. He had vision and power and speed and strength. No one else since has had the same range of talents. He was the greatest. Soccer-loving immigrants in the U.S. followed along, and those of darker hues related to the reaction Pele received at his first World Cup. He said a young Swedish girl kept rubbing his skin and looking at her hand in disbelief, trying to see if the teenager's color would come off. But mainstream America wasn't paying much attention, not to soccer or the diehard enthusiasts who anointed Pele king. He was just another black man in a Latin American country where a U.S.-supported coup led to two decades of a brutal dictatorship. If white America had bothered to care, it would have loved Pele's approach to politics. While a repressive regime was killing and or torturing hundreds of Brazilians, the nation's biggest celebrity never spoke out. The documentary includes a scene where Pele hugs and grins with ruthless President Emilio Garastazu Medici ahead of the 1970 World Cup. Former teammate Paulo Cesar Lima has accused Pele of selling out, calling him, quote, a black person who was submissive, accepts everything, and doesn't answer back, question, or judge. 
A Pelé defender said the dictatorship pressured Pelé into playing at the 1970 World Cup and investigated him for signs of being a leftist sympathizer. Journalist Fuka Kafori pointed out a difference between the footballer's complacency and Muhammad Ali's militancy. Ali risked prison for being a rebel, while Pele risked state-sanctioned abuse. Raised poor with little formal education, he was 23 when the junta took power in 1964. Once he reached stardom, go along to get along was the easiest and safest path. There's a danger of always comparing Brazil to the U.S. in the 1960s, said former President Fernando Henrique Cardoso. It's not like there was a civil rights movement in Brazil in the 60s, and it's not like there were any other footballers standing up to the regime. Activist or not, Pelé's place on the pitch was undeniable for Americans who noticed, except that was a small number. Much like soccer itself, Pelé was barely an afterthought on those shore, pardon me, on these shores in 1970. Yes, the U.S. had produced the greatest sporting upset of all time when it shocked England at the 1950 World Cup, but it couldn't produce more than a smattering of amateur teams and semi-professional leagues that played before sparse crowds on suboptimal fields. One such operation was the North American Soccer League, formed in 1968, clinging to life until Commissioner Phil Woosnam and New York Cosmos threw a Hail Mary. We were trying to keep the whole thing alive and making it grow. We decided there were two things that were needed in this country to transform the whole issue. One was the World Cup, and the other was Pele. He was the only player anyone in this country ever heard of. Everything changed once they nagged so persistently that Pele finally relented in 1975, signing a three-year, $2.8 million contract that made him the world's highest-paying athlete. Pardon me, highest-paid athlete. Cosmos owner Steve Ross was intimately familiar with high-wattage star power. His company's stable included Barbara Streisand, Ray Charles, and the Rolling Stones. He knew Pele was akin to royalty and that America would respond in predictable fashion. Media flocked to the announcement at Manhattan's legendary 21 Club. Ten million viewers watched Pele's debut on CBS, and Cosmos attended triple, pardon me, attendance tripled to over 40,000 fans per game. Generations before social media made such coverage easier, Pele's every move was followed and chronicled in the New York City tabloids and the international press. More than 77,000 fans, Muhammad Ali and Henry Kissinger included, packed Giant Stadium in 1977 for his final Cosmos match. He addressed the crowd before play began, and he said, Love is more important than what we can take in life. But love couldn't keep the NASL afloat seven years later when it folded, crippled by declining attendance and the exorbitant salaries of international stars who followed Pele to America. After Pele retired, the tent just kind of folded. We were like Studio 54. For a moment, everybody wanted us, and then... They were on to something else. This was Cosmos goalie Shep Messing. 
but he planted seeds that led to America hosting the World Cup in 1994. Pele put soccer on the map here without even stepping on the field, said former Cosmos captain Werner Roth. His signing got worldwide attention. Americans were late to the party for sure, but we eventually joined the rest of humanity in knowing who Pele was and what he represented. Moving to the root.com for one more quick bit on Pele. This was written by Vanessa De Luca, posted on the 30th. The root founder, Henry Louis Gates Jr., on Pele's passing and lasting legacy. Pelé, the Brazilian soccer legend who won three World Cups and became the sport's first global icon, died Thursday at the age of 82. His daughter, Kelly Nascimento, Nascimento, wrote in a post on Instagram, Everything that we are is thanks to you, under an image of family members holding Pelé's hands. We love you infinitely. Rest in peace. Pelé was admitted to a hospital in Sao Paulo in late November for a respiratory infection and for complications related to colon cancer, according to CNN. Last week, the hospital said his health had worsened and his cancer progressed. He died on Thursday from multiple organ failure due to the progression of colon cancer. The Root, founder and director of the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research at Harvard University, Henry Louis Gates, Jr., remembers Pele this way, Pele introduced the art of African dance to the world's most democratic sport, and the result was a sublime blend of physical prowess, professional acumen and shrewdness, and the sheer magic of poetry in motion. His trademarked bicycle kick tested the laws of gravity on the soccer pitch long before Michael Jordan decided to give Newton a run for his money on the basketball court. Pelé, a prince both on and off the pitch, was the world's greatest player of the world's most popular game. His successors compete in his shadow. Soccer mourns the loss of the genius who profoundly remolded an entire sport in his own image. Next article from TheRoot.com, written by Noah McGee, Noah A. McGee posted on the 28th. Young black opera singer who shocked the internet with his high note was once heckled. Noah, no, pardon me, Malachi M. Bayo had everyone on social media talking about his performance of Oh Holy Night. A great Christmas song and a beautiful voice can change our entire mood, when we hear Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, we can't help but feel festive. When I think of I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, it embodies how it feels to be a child excited about the holiday season. Those same feelings of happiness and festivity can bring chills when hearing a live performance from a talented singer. That is what 12-year-old opera singer Malachi M. Bayo did with his live rendition of Oh Holy Night. In the days leading up to Christmas, the United Kingdom's Classic FM invited Bayo to perform a duet of the classic Christmas song with Aled Jones, a Classic FM presenter. While both singers were impressive, the young black boy stole the show. 
Bayo's singing abilities caught the attention of many on the Internet, including Oscar-nominated actress Viola Davis, who reposted a clip of the performance on her Instagram, writing, Breathtakingly Beautiful. Similar to Viola, many on the Internet were equally impressed. One user commented, His voice is so pure, I've never heard such a pure, clear voice. Incredible. Another wrote, This is a perfect duet, and Bio's voice is breathtaking. So beautiful, it shot through me like a warming light of love. One user admitted to getting emotional, writing, This brought shivers down my spine and tears in my eyes. Absolutely beautiful. Bio's singing throughout the performance is breathtaking and angelic-like. His last note at the end of the song is particularly amazing. The high note that he reaches is nothing short of marvelous and will bring a smile to anyone who hears it. The duo also sang a rendition of Walking in the Air. According to Classic FM, Bayo is a member of the Cardinal Vaughan Memorial School in London, and his career as a singer began as a cathedral chorister at St. George's Cathedral. In November, he made his debut performance at the Royal Opera House in London, where he sang the role of Oberto in Alcina, according to Classic FM. While performing the opening lines of his debut performance, a heckler booed and shouted rubbish during the show. Others in the crowd shushed him and told him to be quiet. Shortly after the incident, the heckler left. The Royal Opera House banned the mystery heckler in a tweet, writing, Unfortunately, the opening night of Alcina featured an audience member who disrupted the show and the excellent performance by young singer Malachi M. Bayo. They continued, We are appalled that a member of the audience behaved in this way and steps have been taken to ensure the audience member in question does not return to the Royal Opera House. During Bayo's final bow, he received delightful applause from the audience who appreciated and loved his performance. Despite the heckler distracting him at his debut performance, Bayo already has the most impressive resume that a 12-year-old can have, and hopefully he will continue to add to it in the years to come. I'm going to spell his name in case you haven't heard that yet and want to somehow find him. It's B-A-Y-O-H. And the song they're discussing is O Holy Night which can probably be found on YouTube. Our next article comes from the Wall Street Journal. I'll be reading from the print edition. It was um, printed on December 30th, or comes from the December 30th, Friday edition. From age 10, he could hold an audience. Don Cheadle, the white noise actor on his playful family and being an education brat. My initial exposure to acting began at home in Kansas City, Missouri. I came from a very fun-loving family where humor and imagination were prized and encouraged. My parents didn't tell me to sit down and be quiet or sit up straight. We enjoyed being playful with one another, and my curiosity about acting only grew as I spent more time watching TV shows. Pardon me, that actually says watching shows on TV. The next big step took place in elementary school in Denver. When I was 10, 
I played Templeton the Rat in Charlotte's Web. On stage, facing the audience in the dark, I realized I could control their reaction by dialing my performance up or down, as if conducting an orchestra. Some kids are military brats. My sister and I were education brats. My father, Donald, was pursuing a master's and Ph.D. in clinical psychology, and my mother, Betty, was earning a degree in education. They moved us where scholarships, grants, and financial assistance were available. After I completed first grade in Kansas City, my parents moved with me and my older sister, Cindy, to Lincoln, Nebraska. I was in second grade there and pardon me, third grade in Denver, fourth grade and part of fifth grade in Kansas City, and then the rest of fifth grade and beyond in Denver. By then, our younger brother Colin had arrived. Serial relocations forced me to make new friends and figure out my footing. Emotionally, it was tricky for sure. We had gone from a predominantly black neighborhood in KC to the suburbs of Denver. Each summer, though, we'd return to Kansas City. We were an open family that discussed anything and everything that came up. Despite his research and workload, my dad was very much engaged with us. We were very close. My mother and I were close, too. She was a natural educator and taught life skills to young kids. She was tough but understanding and quick-witted, which is where my sense of humor probably comes from. When I was in fifth grade, my teacher, Barbara Althaus, introduced us to the arts, including acting and singing. It was the first time I sang in choir outside of our church. Her excitement was infectious. For Charlotte's Web, I remember looking at my lines and thinking, What does a rat prefer? What would a rat eat first, popcorn or a hot dog? I just instinctively wondered about such things to develop the role. In elementary school, I also began playing the alto saxophone. I listened to my parents' jazz records and loved how cool the instrument looked with its curved neck and all those pearl buttons. In high school, I took theater class and had an excellent teacher, Kathy Davis, who introduced me to the acting methods of Stanislavski and Uta Hagen. After high school, I attended California Institute of the Arts and majored in theater. While at CalArts in the early 80s, my classmates and I went to an open call for the TV series Fame. My sweetmate, Jesse Borrego, had booked the gig, but the producers who wanted Jesse couldn't find him after. He only left a general number at CalArts and a Polaroid photo. A couple of days later, friends saw him on campus and told him his picture was on the news, that the Fame producers were looking for him. He needed an agent to sign him and make his deal, so I went with Jesse and another friend of ours to meet one, Kay Lieberman. When we showed up, Kay said she wanted to represent all three of us. A year later, when I was a junior at CalArts, she sent me to an audition for a part as a worker at a fast food joint called Juicy Burgers. I landed the role, my first, in the movie Moving Violations. Today, my wife, Bridget, and I live in Los Angeles. We bought the property in 1999 because it was close to our kids' school and a 10-minute walk to the beach, but we needed a larger home. Bridget was an 
is an interior designer with offices in L.A. and Hawaii. Together we sketched the house we wanted and where every element should be and are building it nearby. Looking back, I realize now that my father and I shared a passion for psychology, but we never compared notes. He viewed psychology as a way to better understand human behavior. I look at human behavior as a way to establish a character's motivations, voice, and movement. This article is appearing now because of the new movie White Noise appearing on Netflix. It's an apocalyptic comedy set in a small college town. He says, I play Professor Murray Siskind. Notes on playing Miles Davis. The toughest part was all of it. <laughs> Writing the Miles Ahead screenplay for ten years and directing and producing while acting in the lead role. At home music room? Does he have one? Nope. I play trumpet, bass, and alto sax all over the house. And at the bottom we have Don Cheadle, 58, is a Tony and Grammy-winning actor who starred in Hotel Rwanda, the Oceans Trilogy, and Marvel Cinematic Universal Films. He directed and starred in Miles Ahead and currently co-stars in Netflix's White Noise. I have just time for some brief profiles of small business owners next from thegrio.com. Black in Bourbon, about bro brother, pardon me, bro brothers, Kentucky's first black-owned distillery. After releasing an inaugural sourced bourbon earlier this year, the brother-led band, pardon me, that's brother-led brand, hopes to release its own distillate in 2023. This is written by Ray Marcano, posted back in July. In 1783, Evan Williams opened the first commercial bourbon distillery in Kentucky. It would take 237 years more for the first black-owned distillery to enter the market in the state famous for its own bourbon trail. Bro Brothers in Louisville has been on a breakneck pace of distillation and expansion since the Kentucky Alcoholic Beverage Control Board approved the distillery in 2020. Brow Brothers released its first bourbon earlier this year with from Sourced Bourbon and hoped to release its own distillate in 2023. Victor Yarbrough, the CEO of Brow Brothers, told the Grio, We've got quite a bit of momentum, quite a bit of support from the community, from the retailers and the district distributors. For the unfamiliar, Sourced means a company gets its bourbon from another distiller. Distilled bourbon means the company brews, ages, and bottles its product at its own facility. Brough Brothers hope they found a niche appealing to novice drinkers eager to try bourbon. They have potentially a huge market among black consumers who represent 13% of the national population, but only 9% of bourbon drinkers. Kentucky's 68 distillers produce 95% of the world's bourbon. Many of those distilleries house well-known brands like Maker's Mark, Wild Turkey, and Buffalo Trace. There are a growing number of smaller distilleries trying to make headway into the market. Brough Brothers seems to be on its way. I'm going to spell that name now for you. That's B-R-O-U-G-H. Brough Brothers. I'm not quite sure how they pronounce it. 
You can currently find the Bro Brothers brand in 28 states, and the owners have a plan to scale the business for greater distribution and expansion. They have a very nice, approachable, and versatile bourbon for entry-level drinkers. I recommend trying it without ice, but if you need to cut it, add a small few drops of water at a time instead of a full ice cube, which could really dilute the flavors. I don't mix bourbon, but I could see it in an old-fashioned or a Manhattan, or even with your favorite soft drink. If you can find a bottle of Brove Brothers, it's certainly worth a try. Brove Brothers hopes to release a small batch, higher-proof, higher-priced bourbon for connoisseurs sometimes this, sometime this year and is working through the details. I'm looking forward to that. Well, that one takes us to the end of our time for this week. Thank you for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Trendware, Colorado's best full-service IT-managed services and purpose-built computer device provider. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.